Chapter Twenty of Empire by Clifford Simak. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The revolution was over. Interplanetary officials and army heads had fled to the sanctuary of Earth. Interplanetary was ended, ended forever, for on every world, including Earth, material energy engines were humming. The people had power to burn, to throw away, power so cheap that it was practically worthless as a commodity, but invaluable as a way to a new life, a greater life, a fuller life, a broader destiny for the human race. Interplanetary stocks were worthless. The mighty power plants on Venus and Mercury were idle. The only remaining tangible asset were the fleets of spaceships used less than a month before to ship the accumulators to the outer worlds to bring them sunward for recharging. Patents protecting the rights to the material energy engines had been obtained from every government throughout the solar system. New governments were being formed on the wreckage of the old. John Moore Mallory already had been inaugurated as President of the Jovian Confederacy. The elections on Mars and Venus would be held within a week. Mercury, its usefulness gone, with the smashing of the accumulator trade, had been abandoned. No human foot now trod its surface. Its mighty domes were empty. It went its way, as it had done for billions of years, a little burned-out, worthless planet, ignored and shunned. For a brief moment it had known the conquering tread of mankind, had played its part in the commerce of the worlds, but now it had reverted to its former state, a lonely wanderer of the regions near the sun, a pariah among the other planets. Russell Page looked across the desk at Gregory Manning. He heaved a sigh and dug the pipe out of his jacket pocket. "'It's finished, Greg,' he said. Greg nodded solemnly, watching Russ fill the bowl and apply the match. Except for the small crew, they were alone in the Invincible. John Moore Mallory and the others were on their own worlds, forming their own governments, carrying out the dictates of the people, men who would go down in solar history. The Invincible hung just off Callisto. Russ looked out at the mighty moon, saw the lonely stretches of its ice-bound surface, saw the silvery spot that was the dome of Ranthor. "'All done,' said Greg, "'except for one thing.' "'Go out and get Chambers and the others,' said Russ, puffing at the pipe. Greg nodded. "'We may as well get started.' Russ rose slowly, went to the wall cabinet, and lifted out a box, the mechanical shadow with its tiny space-field surrounding the fleck of steel that would lead them to the interplanetarian. Carefully he lifted the machine from its resting-place, and set it on the desk. Bending over it he watched the dials. Suddenly he whistled. "'Greg, they moved. They aren't where we left them.' Greg sprang to his side and stared at the readings. "'They're moving farther away from us, out into space. Where can they be going?' Russ straightened, scowling, pulling at the pipe. "'They probably found another G-type star and are heading for that. They must think it's old Sol.' "'That sounds like it,' said Greg. "'We spun all over the map to throw Craven off, and looped several times so he'd lose all sense of direction. Naturally he would be lost.' "'But he's evidently got something,' Russ pointed out. "'We left him marooned, dead centre, out where he didn't have too much radiation and couldn't get leverage on any single body. Yet he's moving, and getting farther away all the time.' "'He solved our gravitation concentration screen,' said Greg. "'He tricked us into giving him power to build it.' The two men looked at one another for a long minute. "'Well,' said Russ, "'that's that. Craven and Chambers and Stutzman, the three villains.' All lost in space, heading for the wrong star. Hopelessly lost. Maybe they'll never find their way back. He stopped and relit his pipe. An aching silence fell in the room. 
"'Poetic justice,' said Russ. "'Hail and farewell.' Greg rubbed his fist indecisively along the desk. "'I can't do it, Russ. We took them out there. We marooned them. We have to get them back, or I couldn't sleep nights.' Russ laughed quietly, watching the bleak face that stared at him. "'I knew that's what you'd say.' He knocked out the pipe, crushed a fleck of burning tobacco with his boot. Pocketing the pipe, he walked to the control panel, sat down and reached for the lever. The engines hummed louder and louder. The Invincible darted spaceward. "'It's too late now,' said Chambers. "'By the time we reach that planetary system and charge our accumulators, Manning and Page will have everything under control back in the solar system.' Even if we could locate the star that was our sun, we wouldn't have a chance to get there in time. Too bad, Craven said, and wagged his head, looking like a solemn owl. Too bad. Dictator Stutsman won't have a chance to strut his stuff. Stutsman started to say something and thought better of it. He leaned back in his chair. From his belt hung a heat pistol. Chambers eyed the pistol with ill-concealed disgust. There's no point in playing soldier. We aren't going to try to upset your mutiny. So far your taking over the ship hasn't made any difference to us, so why should we fight you? It isn't going to make any difference either, said Craven, because there are just two things that will happen to us. We're either lost forever, we'll never find our way back, we'll spend the rest of our days wandering from star to star, or Manning will come out and take us by the ear and lead us home again. Chambers started, leaned forward and fastened his steely eyes on Craven. Do you really think he could find us? "'I have no doubt of it,' Craven replied. "'I don't know how he does it, but I'm convinced he can. "'Probably, however, he'll find that we are lost, and get rid of us that way.' "'No,' said Chambers. "'You're wrong there. Manning wouldn't do that. He'll come to get us.' "'I don't know why he should,' snapped Craven. "'Because he's that sort of man,' declared Chambers. "'What you going to do when he does get out here?' demanded Stutsman. "'Fall on his neck and kiss him?' Chambers smiled, stroked his moustache. "'Why, no,' he said. "'I imagine we'll fight. We'll give him everything we've got, and he'll do the same. It wouldn't seem natural if we didn't.' "'You're damned right we will,' growled Stutsman, "'because I'm running this show. You seem to keep forgetting that. We have power enough, when we get those accumulators filled, to wipe him out. And that is exactly what I'm going to do.' "'Fine,' said Craven, mockingly. "'Just fine. There's just one thing you forget.' Manning is the only man who can lead us back to the solar system. Hell, stormed Stutsman, that doesn't make any difference. I'll find my way back there some way. You're afraid of Manning, Chambers challenged. Stutsman's hand went down to the heat pistol's grip. His eyes glazed and his face twisted itself into utter hatred. I don't know why I keep on letting you live. Craven is valuable to me. I can't kill him. But you aren't. You aren't worth a damn to anyone. Chambers matched his stare. Stutsman's hand dropped from the pistol, and he slouched to his feet, walked from the room. "'Afraid of Manning!' he laughed, a hollow, gurgling laugh. "'Afraid of Manning!' But he was. Within his brain hammered a single sentence. Words he had heard Manning speak as he watched over the television set at Manning's mocking invitation. Words that beat into his brain and seared his reason and made his soul shrivel and grow small. Manning talking to Scorio talking to him matter-of-factly, but grimly. "'I promise you that we'll take care of Stutsman.' Manning had taken Scorio and his gangsters one by one and sent them to far corners of the solar system, one out to the dreaded Vulcan fleet, one to the outpost, one to the Titan prison, and one to the hell-hole on the Vesta, while Scorio had gone to a little mountain set in a Venus swamp, 
They hadn't a chance. They had been locked within a force shell, and shunted through millions of miles of space. No trial, no hearing, nothing. Just terrible, unrelenting judgment. I promise you that we'll take care of Stutsman. Craven's only a few billion miles ahead now, said Gregory Manning. With our margin of speed we should overhaul him in a few more hours. He is still short on power, but he's remedying that rapidly. He's getting nearer to that sun every minute. Running in toward it as he is, he tends to sweep up outpouring radiations. That helps him collect a whole lot more than he would under ordinary circumstances. Russ, sitting before the controls, pipe clenched in his teeth, watching the dials, nodded soberly. "'All I'm afraid of,' he said, "'is that he'll get too close to that sun before we can catch up with him. If he gets close enough so he can fill those accumulators, he'll pack a bigger wallop than we do. It'll all be in one bolt, of course, for his power isn't continuous like ours. He has to collect it slowly. But when he's really loaded, he can give us aces and still win. I'd hate to take everything he could pack into those accumulators.' Greg shuddered. So would I. The Invincible was exceeding the speed of light, was enveloped in the mysterious darkness that characterized the speed. They could see nothing outside the ship, for there was nothing to see. But the tiny mechanical shadow, occupying a place of honor on the navigation board, kept them informed of the position and the distance of the interplanetarian. Greg lolled in his chair, watching Russ. I don't think we need to worry about him throwing the entire load of the accumulators at us, he said. He wouldn't dare load those accumulators to peak capacity. He's got to leave enough carrying capacity in the cells to handle any jolts we send him, and he knows we can send him plenty. He has to keep that handling margin at all times, over and above what he takes in for power, because his absorption screen is also a defensive screen, and he has to use some power to keep our television apparatus out. Russ chuckled. I suppose at that we have him plenty worried. The thunder of the engines filled the control rooms, for days now that thunder had been in their ears. They had grown accustomed to it, now hardly noticed it. Ten mighty engines, driving the Invincible at a pace no other ship had ever obtained, except, possibly, the Interplanetarian, although lack of power should have held Craven's ship down to a lower speed. Craven wouldn't have dared to build up the acceleration they had now attained, for he would have drained his banks and been unable to charge them again. "'Maybe he won't fight,' said Russ. Maybe he has figured out by this time that he's heading for the wrong star. He may be glad to see us and follow us back to the solar system. No chance of that. Craven and Chambers won't pass up the chance for a fight. They'll give us a few wallops, if only for the appearance of things. We're crawling up all the time, said Russ. If we can catch him within four or five billion miles of the star, he won't be too tough to handle. Be getting plenty of radiations even then, but not quite as much as he would like to have. "'He'll have to start decelerating pretty soon,' Greg declared. "'He can't run the chance of smashing into the planetary system at the speed he's going. "'He won't want to waste too much power using his field as a brake, "'because he must know by this time that we're after him, "'and he'll want what power he has to throw at us.' "'Hours passed. The Invincible crept nearer and nearer, "'suddenly seemed to leap ahead as the Interplanetarian began deceleration. "'Keep giving her all you've got,' Greg urged Russ. "'We've got plenty of power for braking. "'We can overhaul him and stop in a fraction of the time he does.' "'Russ nodded grimly. "'The distance indicator needle on the mechanical shadow slipped off rapidly. "'Greg, leaping from his chair, hung over it breathlessly. "'I think,' he said, "'we'd better slow down now. "'If we don't, we'll be inside the planetary system.' "'How far out is Craven?' asked Russ. "'Not far enough,' Greg replied unhappily. 
He can't be more than three billion miles from the star, and that star's hot. A Class G, all right, but a good deal younger than old Sol. We'll let them know we've arrived, grinned Greg. He sent a stabbing beam of half a billion horsepower slashing at the interplanetarian. The other ship staggered but steadied itself. They know, said Russ cryptically from his position in front of the vision plate. We shook them up a bit. They waited. Nothing happened. Greg scratched his head. Maybe you were right. Maybe they don't want to fight. Together they watched the interplanetarian. It was still moving in towards the distant sun as if nothing had happened. We'll see, said Greg. Back at the controls he threw out a gigantic tractor beam, catching the other ship in a net of forces that visibly cut its speed. Space suddenly vomited lashing flame that slapped back and licked and crawled in living streamers over the surface of the Invincible. The engines moaned in their valiant battle to keep up the outer screen. The pungent odour of ozone filtered into the control room. The whole ship was bucking and vibrating, creaking, as if it was being pulled apart. "'So they don't want to fight, eh?' hooted Russ. Greg gritted his teeth. "'They snapped the tractor beam.' "'They have power there,' Russ declared. "'Too much,' said Greg. "'More power than they have any right to have.' His hand went out to the lever on the board and pulled it back. A beam smashed out, with the engine screaming drive behind it, billions of horsepower driving with unleashed ferocity at the other ship. Greg's hands spun a dial, while the generators roared thunderous defiance. "'I'm giving them the radiation scale,' said Greg. The interplanetarian was staggering under the terrific bombardment, but its screen was handling every ounce of the power that Greg was pouring into it. "'Their photo-cells can't handle that,' cried Russ. "'No photo-cell could handle all that stuff you're shooting into them unless—' "'Unless what?' "'Unless Craven has improved on them. We'll have to find out. Get the televisor.' Russ leapt for the television machine. A moment later he lifted a haggard face. "'I can't get through,' he said. "'Craven's got our beam stopped, and now he has our television blocked out.' Greg nodded. "'We might have expected that. "'When he could scramble our televisors back in the Jovian worlds, "'he certainly ought to be able to screen his ship against them.' "'He shoved the lever clear over, slamming the extreme limit of power into the beam. "'The engine screamed like demented things, howling and shrieking. "'Instantly a tremendous sheet of solid flame spun a fiery web around the interplanetarian, "'turning it into a blazing inferno of lapping, leaping fire.' A dozen terrific beams, billions of horsepower in each, stabbed back at the Invincible as the Interplanetarian shunted the terrific energy influx from the overcharged accumulators to the various automatic energy discharges. The Invincible screen flared in defence, and the ten great engines wailed in utter agony. More stabbing flame shot from the Interplanetarian in slow explosions. The temperature in Invincible's control room was rising. The ozone was sharp enough to make their eyes water and nostrils burn. The vision glass was blanked out by the lapping flames that crawled and writhed over the screen outside the glass. Russ tore his collar open, wiped his face with his shirt-sleeve. "'Try a pure magnetic!' Greg, his face set and bleak as a wall of stone, grunted agreement. His fingers danced over the control manual. Suddenly the stars outside twisted and danced, like stars gone mad, as if they were dancing a riotous jig in space some uproariously hopping up and down while others were applauding the show that was being provided for their unblinking eyes. The magnetic field was tightening now, twisting the light from those distant stars and bending it straight again. The interplanetarian reeled like a drunken thing, and the great arcs of electric flame looped madly and plunged straight for the field's very heart. 
The stars danced weirdly in far-off space again as the interplanetarians' accumulators lashed out with tremendous force to oppose the energy of the field. The field glowed softly and disappeared. "'They have us stopped at every turn,' groaned Russ. "'There must be some way, something we can do.' He looked at Greg. Greg grinned without humour, wiping his face. "'There is something we can do,' said Russ grimly. "'We should have thought of it long ago.' He strode to the desk, reached out one hand, and drew a calculator near. "'You keep them busy,' he snapped. "'I'll have this thing figured out in just a while.' From the engine rooms came the roar and hum of the labouring units, and the Invincible shuddered once again as Greg grimly hurled one beam after another at the Interplanetarian. The Interplanetarian struck back, using radio frequency that flamed fiercely against the Invisible's outer screen. Simultaneously the Interplanetarian leapt forward with a sudden surge of accumulated energy, driving at the star that lay not more than three billion miles away. Greg worked desperately, cursing under his breath. He pulled down the outer screen that was fighting directly against the radio frequency, energy for energy, and allowed the beam to strike squarely on the second screen, the inversion field that shunted the major portion of the energy impacting against it through ninety degrees into another space. The engines moaned softly, and settled into a quieter rumble, as the necessity of supplying the first screen was eliminated, but they screamed once again as Greg sent out a tractor beam that seized and held, dragged the interplanetarian to a standstill. Craven's ship had gained millions of miles, though, and established a tremendous advantage by fighting nearer to its source of energy. "'Russ!' gasped Greg. "'If you don't get that scheme of yours figured out pretty soon, we're done for. They've stopped everything we got. They're nearer the sun. We won't stand a chance if they make another break like that.' Russ glanced up to answer, but his mouth fell open in amazement, and he did not speak. A streak of terrible light was striking at them from the interplanetarian, blinding white light, and along that highway of light swarmed a horde of little green figures like squirming green amoebas, swarming toward the invincible, stretching out hungry pale green pseudopods towards the inversion barrier, and eating through it. Wherever they touched, holes appeared. They drifted through the inversion screen easily, and began drilling into the inner screen of anti-entropy, eating their way into the anti-entropy, into a state of matter which Russ and Greg had thought would resist all change. For seconds both men stood transfixed, unable to believe the evidence of their eyes. But the amoeba things came on in ever-increasing throngs, creatures that gnawed and slobbered at the anti-entropy, eating into it, flaking it away, drilling their way through it. When they pierced the anti-entropy, they would cut through the steel plates of the invincible like so much paper. And more were coming, more and more. With a grunt of amazement, Greg slammed a beam straight into the heart of the amoebas. They ate the beam, and vanished as mistily as before, little glowing things that ate and died. But there were always more to take their place. They overwhelmed the beam, and ate back along its length, attacked the screen again. They ate through the walls of force, and walls of metal, and a rush of hissing air began to flame into irons into the terrific battle of energies outside the Invincible. Russ was crouching over the manual of the televisor board. His breath moaned in his throat as his fingers flew. "'I have to have power, Greg,' he said. "'Lots of power!' "'Take it,' Greg replied. "'I haven't been able to do anything with it. It isn't any use to me.' Russ's thumb reached out and tripped the activating lever. The giant engine shrieked and yowled. Something was happening on the television screen, something terrifying. Craven's ship seemed to retreat suddenly for millions of miles, and as suddenly the Invincible appeared on the screen. For a single flashing instant the view held, 
Then it was gone in blank greyness. For seconds nothing happened on the screen, unnerving seconds, while the two men held their breath. The screen's greyness fled, and they looked into the control room of the interplanetarian. Craven was hunched in a chair, intent upon a series of controls. Behind him and to one side stood Stutsman. A heat pistol dangled from his hand, his face twisted into a sneer of triumph. There was no sign of Chambers. "'You damn fool!' Craven was snapping at Stutsman. "'You're cheating us out of the only chance we ever had of getting home!' "'Shut up!' snarled Stutsman, the pistol jerking in his hand. "'Have you got that apparatus on full power?' "'It's been on full power for minutes now,' said Craven. "'It must be eating holes straight through Manning's ship.' "'See you keep it that way. I really don't need you any more anyhow. I watched and I know all the tricks. I could carry on this battle single-handed.' Craven did not reply, merely hunched closer over the controls, eyes watching flickering dials. Greg jogged Russ's elbow. "'That must be the apparatus over there, in the corner of the room. That triangular affair, a condenser of some sort. That stuff they're throwing at us must be super-saturated force fields, and they'd need a space-field condenser for that.' Russ nodded. "'We'll take care of that.' His fingers moved swiftly, and a transport beam whipped out, riding the television beam. Bands of force wrapped around the triangular machine and wrenched viciously. In the screen the apparatus disappeared, simply was gone. It now lay within the Invincible's control room, jerked there by the teletransport. The flood of dazzling light reaching out from the interplanetarian snapped off, and the little green amoeba things were gone. The shrill whistle of escaping air stopped as the eaten screens clamped down again, sealing in the atmosphere despite the holes bored through the metal plates. In the television screen, Craven leapt from his chair, was staring with Stutzman at the place where the concentrator had stood. The machine had been ripped from a welded base, and jagged bright torn metal gleamed in the control room lights. Snapped cables and broken bus bars lay piled about the room. "'What happened?' Stutzman was screaming. They heard Craven laugh at the terror in the other's voice. "'Manning just walked in and grabbed it away from us.' "'But he couldn't. We had the screen up. He couldn't get through.' Craven shrugged his shoulders. I don't know how he did it, but he did. Probably he could clean out the whole place if he wanted to. That's a good idea, said Russ, judiciously. He stripped bank after bank of the other ship's photocells from their moorings, wrecked the force field controls, ripped cables from the engines, and left the ship without means of collecting power, without means of using power, without means of movement, of offence or defence. He leaned back in his chair and regarded the screen with deep satisfaction. That, he decided, should hold them for a while. He hauled the pipe out of his pocket and filled it from the battered leather pouch. Greg regarded him with a quizzical stare. "'You sent the televisor back in time. You got it inside the interplanetarian before Craven had run up his screen, and then you bought it forward.' "'You guessed it,' said Russ, tamping the tobacco into the bowl. "'We should have thought of that long ago. We have a time factor there. In fact, the whole thing revolves around time.' We move the televisor, we use the teletransport by giving the objects we wish to move an acceleration in time. Greg wrinkled his brow. Maybe that means we can really investigate the past, or even the future. Can sit here before our screen and see everything that has happened, everything that is going to happen. Russ shook his head. I don't know, Greg. Notice, though, that we got no screen response until the televisor came up out of the past and actually reached the point which coincided with the present. That is, the screen and the televisor itself have to be on the same time level for them to operate. We might modify the screen, 
even modify the televisor, so that we could travel in time. But it will take a lot of research, and a lot of work. And especially it will take a whale of a lot of power. We have the power, said Greg. Ross moved the lighter back and forth over the tobacco, igniting it carefully. Clouds of blue smoke whirled around his head. He spoke out of the smoke. Right now, he said, we'd better see how Craven and our other friends are getting along. I didn't like the way Stutsman was talking, or the way he was swinging that gun around. And Chambers wasn't anywhere in sight. There's something screwy about the entire thing. What are we going to do now? demanded Stutsman. Craven grinned at him. That's up to you. Remember, you're the mastermind around here. You took over and said you were going to run things. He waved a casual hand at the shattered machines and the ripped-out apparatus. Well, there you are. Go ahead and run the joint. But you will have to help, pleaded Stutsman. His face twisted until it seemed that he was suffering intense physical agony. You know what to do, I don't. Craven shook his head. There isn't any use starting. Manning will be along almost any time now. We'll wait and see what he has in mind. Manning, shrieked Stutsman, waving the pistol wildly. Always Manning. One would think you were working for Manning. He's the big shutout in this little corner of space right now, Craven pointed out. There isn't any way you can get around that. Stutsman backed carefully away. His gun came up, and he looked at Craven appraisingly, as if selecting his targets. Put down that gun, said a voice. Gregory Manning stood between Stutsman and Craven. There had been no foggy forerunner of his appearance. He had just snapped out of empty air. Stutsman stared at him, his eyes widening, but the gun remained steady in his hand. "'Look out, Craven!' warned Greg. "'He's going to fire, and it'll go right through me and hit you!' There was a thump of a falling body as Craven hurled himself out of his chair, hit the floor and rolled. Stutsman's gun vomited flame. The spouting flame passed through Greg's image, blasted against the chair in which Craven had sat, fused it until it fell in on itself. "'Russ,' said Greg quietly, "'disarm this fellow before he hurts somebody.' An unseen force reached out and twisted the gun from Stutsman's hand, flung it to one side. Swiftly Stutsman's hands were forced behind his back and held there by invisible bonds. Stutsman cried out, tried to struggle, but he was unable to move. It was as if giant hands had gripped him, were holding him in a vice-like clutch. "'Thanks, Manning,' said Craven, getting up off the floor. "'The fool would have shot this time. He's threatened it for days. He has been developing a homicidal mania.' "'We don't need to worry about him now,' declared Greg. He turned around to face Craven. "'Where's Chambers?' "'Stutsman locked him up,' said Craven. "'I imagine he has the key in his pocket. Locked him up in the stateroom. Chambers jumped him and tried to take the gun away from him, and Stutsman laid him out, hit him over the head. He kept Chambers locked up after that. Hasn't allowed anyone to go near the room. Hasn't even given him food and water. That was three days ago.' "'Get the key out of his pocket,' directed Greg. "'Go and see how Chambers is.' Alone in the control room, with Stutsman, Greg looked at him. "'I have a score to settle with you, Stutsman,' he said. "'I had intended to let it ride, but not now.' "'You can't touch me,' blustered Stutsman. "'You wouldn't dare.' "'What makes you think I wouldn't?' "'You're bluffing. You've got a lot of tricks, but you can't do the things you would like me to think you can. You've got Chambers and Craven fooled, but not me.' "'It may be that I can offer you definite proof.' Chambers staggered over the threshold. His clothing was rumpled. A rude bandage was wound around his head. His face was haggard, and his eyes red. "'Hello, Manning,' he said. "'I suppose you've won. The solar system must be in your control by now.' 
He lifted his hand to his moustache, brushed it, a feeble attempt at playing the old role he'd acted so long. "'We've won,' said Greg quietly. "'But you're wrong about our being in control. The governments are in the hands of the people, where they should be.' Chambers nodded. "'I see,' he rumbled. "'Different people, different ideas.' His eyes rested on Stutsman, and Greg saw sudden rage sweep across the grey, haggard face. "'So you've got him, have you? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with all of us?' "'I haven't had time to think about it,' said Greg. "'I've principally been thinking about Stutsman here.' "'He mutinied,' rasped Chambers. "'He seized the ship. Turned the crew against me.' "'And the penalty for that,' said Greg quietly, "'is death. Death by walking in space.' Stutsman writhed within the bands of force that held him tight, his face contorted. "'No, damn you, you can't do that. Not to me, you can't.' "'Shut up,' roared Chambers, and Stutsman quietened. I was thinking, too, said Greg, that at his order thousands of people were mercilessly shot down back in the solar system, stood against a wall and mowed down. Others were killed like wild animals in the street. Thousands of them. He moved slowly towards Stutsman, and the man cringed. Stutsman, he said, you're a butcher. You're a stench in the nostrils of humanity. You aren't fit to live. Those, said Craven, are my sentiments exactly. "'You hate me!' screamed Stutsman. "'All of you hate me! "'You are doing this because you hate me!' "'Everyone hates you, Stutsman,' said Greg. "'Every living person hates you. "'You have a cloud of hate hanging over you "'as black and wide as space.' "'The man closed his eyes, "'trying to break free of the bonds. "'Bring me a spacesuit,' snapped Greg, "'watching Stutsman's face. "'Craven bought it and dropped it at Stutsman's feet. "'All right, Russ,' said Greg. "'Turn him loose.' Stutsman swayed and almost fell as the bands of force released him. "'Get into the suit,' ordered Greg. Stutsman hesitated, but something he saw in Greg's face made him lift the suit, step into it, fasten it about his body. "'What are you going to do with me?' he whimpered. "'You aren't going to take me back to Earth again, are you? You aren't going to make me stand trial?' "'No,' said Greg gravely. "'We aren't taking you back to Earth, and you're standing trial right now.' Stutsman read his fate in the cold eyes that stared into his. Chattering frightenedly, he rushed at Greg, plunged through him, collided with the wall of the ship and toppled over, feebly attempting to rise. Invisible hands hoisted him to his feet, gripped him, held him upright. Greg walked towards him, stood facing him. Stutsman, he said, you have four hours of air. That will give you four hours to think, to make your peace with death. He turned toward the other two. Chambers nodded grimly. Craven said nothing. "'And now,' said Greg to Craven, "'if you will fasten down his helmet.' The helmet clanged shut, shutting out the pleas and threats that came from Stutsman's throat. Stutsman saw distant stars, cruel, gleaming eyes that glared at him. Empty space fell away on all sides. Numbed by fear, he realised where he was. Manning had picked him up and thrown him far into space out into that waste where for hundreds of light-years there was only the awful nothingness of space. He was less than a speck of dust in this great immensity of emptiness. There was no up or down, no means of orientation. Loneliness and terror closed in on him, a terrible agony of fear. In four hours his air would be gone, and then he would die. His body would swirl and eddy through this great cosmic ocean. It would never be found. It would remain here, embalmed by the cold of space, until the last clap of eternity. 
There was one way, the easy way. His hand reached up and grasped the connection between his helmet and the air tank. One wrench, and he would die swiftly, quickly, instead of letting death stalk him through the darkness for the next four hours. He shivered, and his hand loosened its hold, dropped away. He was afraid to hasten death. He wanted to put it off. He was afraid of death, horribly afraid. The stars mocked him, and he seemed to hear hooting laughter from somewhere far away. Curiously, it sounded like his own laughter. "'I'll make it easy for you, Manning,' Chambers said. "'I know that all of us are guilty. Guilty in the eyes of the people and the law. Guilty in your eyes. If we had won, there would have been no penalty. There's never a penalty for the one who wins.' "'Penalty,' said Greg, his eyes half-smiling. "'Why, yes, I think there is. I'm going to order you aboard the Invincible for something to eat and to get some rest.' "'You mean to say that we aren't prisoners?' Greg shook his head. "'Not prisoners,' he said. "'Why, I came out here to guide you back to Earth. I hauled you out here and got you into this jam. It was up to me to get you out of it. I would have done the same for Studsman, too, but—' He hesitated and looked at Chambers. Chambers stared back and slowly nodded. "'Yes, Manning,' he said. "'I think I understand.'" End of chapter 20